Hello everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. This weekend is the 30th anniversary of the coming down of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the wall, the Iron Curtain that cut Europe in two, finally was breached this week in 1989. A seminal moment never forgotten by anyone who was alive at the time. I was just about alive, only just. Rory McLean, this journalist and author, he was there at the time, he was in Berlin. So I thought he'd be the perfect person to reminisce about that seismic world history. He's worked in Eastern Europe before and after the falling of the wall. He's recently completed another road trip around Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And he discusses how the euphoria, the optimism of that week in 1989, has not quite been borne out by results, political developments across the former communist world. We have produced a film to accompany this interview. It's on History Hit TV, of course. Our new digital history channel. It's our new Netflix for history. Proper history fans. No aliens, no ghosts, just history. Well, actually, a few ghosts, actually. There are one or two. Some ghosts, no aliens. Our History Hit TV. You sign up. You use the code POD3, P-O-D-3. And because you're podcast listeners, you get an exclusive offer. 30 days free. And then your first three months, just one pound, euro or dollar per month. I mean, check that out. It's amazing. You might have heard mention it before, but it's it's pretty exciting. So head over there, watch Roy McLean, listen to these podcasts without the ads, watch many of the other history documentaries got, and and get involved with a new way of watching history. In the meantime, enjoy Roy McLean. Rory, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Dan. Delighted, delighted to be here. It is. It's a big anniversary. Uh, yeah, it is a big anniversary. Uh, 9th November, 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Can we just revisit that for a sec? Because you were very much, you were involved, you were out in that part of the world at the yeah, time. That's right. I was in the summer of 1989, I was commissioned to write a book on the forgotten half of Europe, that bit of Europe then on from our point of view on the other side of the Berlin Wall. And I was just about in October, November 1989, about to begin it, when uh, uh, Chairman Gorbachev very kindly, perhaps in, in consultation with my publisher, enabled the Berlin Wall to fall, to be opened. And, and I was there. And, and so I traveled. I was so fortunate to be there at the time, to be able to travel in through Central and Eastern Europe in this remarkable time, a time of euphoria, because for 70 years, East, East Germans, Poles, Hungarians, Russians, uh, Romanians, they had been under different forms of totalitarian, totalitarianism, first under the fascists, then under the, uh, the communists, and suddenly, <laughs> suddenly the wall came down and the secret policemen went off, vanished from the streets. And there was this this remarkable period of euphoria, of hope, of optimism, of this brave new Europe. Um, and, uh, and people, I think what was so remarkable was people just opened their hearts because they hadn't been, they hadn't been allowed to speak to a foreigner or if they had spoken to a foreigner during that time, they would have had to report it to the, the Stasi or the STB or the KGB. And so they just opened their hearts and told me these remarkable stories, which I then put into my first book, Stalin's Nose. Tell me about um, what, was, what was West Berlin like just before the war? It must have felt like an extraordinary line of Western values and commercialism and, and freedom sur surrounded by this sort of hint hinterland. 
Yes, but the remarkable the thing, the thing we forget about West Berlin is it was dying because it was an artificial creation. It was this walled city surrounded by three quarters of a million Red Army soldiers and it was dying. It was slowly being suffocated. It was kept alive by money poured in from, um, from uh, Bonn, from West Germany and also from Washington. But <laughs> it was quite remarkable flying in to West Berlin during the, the 70s and 80s because you would fly over rural East Germany because um, it was this pocket in the middle of East Germany. You would fly over rural East Germany and everything would be dark. It was countryside. And then <laughs> on the horizon, you would see this glittering, these glittering lights of Kurfürstendamm and, and Kanzstrasse and the Europa Center. And it was just, it was, it was a showcase. It was a Western showcase. And that's what the politicians wanted it to be. And when you were there, how obvious was the wall, this wall that we all hear so much about now? <laughs> well, it was everywhere. It was, it, was, it was around you all sides. Because there was a certain, certain island fever that um, people got in Berlin. There's an old, old song called Ich habe noch ein Koffer in Berlin. I, I have a suitcase in Berlin. And in, when the song was written in the 20s, it, was, it, it referred to how everybody had a love of Berlin and wanted to go there. But in the, during the Cold War, in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, it, it, uh, <laughs> up till 1989, it meant I have my suitcase packed and I'm ready to sprint. But as I said, it was this dying city. It was, this, there, it was a city of, of draft dodgers because any West German who moved there uh, didn't have to serve in the army. Mm. Their moving expenses were paid for. Taxes were cheaper, so it was. <laughs> so basically, you had two types of people there. Generalizing, you had uh, the Wilmersdorfer widows, as they were called, uh, who survived from the wartime, who had these grand apartments, which now everybody wants, um, and you had the <laughs> the anarchists and the future Gre Green Party and uh, the nonconformists from from West Germany, and a good scattering of artists. An eccentric place. It was, it, it really was, it, there was something, there was something unique about it. I don't want to romanticize it at all, but because it was artificial, it was dying, it depended on money being pumped into it. But there was something, it was a place on the edge. And, and I think over the years, that's why so many creative people, um, like Christopher Isherwood, like, uh, like David Bowie, have, have gone there because it has always been, to a greater or lesser extent, a place on the edge, a, a place which is always transforming, a place that's always reinventing itself. You know, no other city I know of has been so powerful and fallen so low um, so often. And when, when you were there in the spring of 1989, was there any hint, any sense, any feel that this might nope. be coming to an end? No, nope. no. Nope. There were protests over the other side, uh, on the other side of the wall. There were quite regular protests. There were, uh, there were church groups protesting. There were marches. Um, <laughs> a dear friend of mine, an, uh, an East German, East, was then an East German writer, now he's a German writer, Thomas Brusig, he, he talks about every time he went on a protest march, he would close his apartment door behind him and think, I may never open this door again because I may be arrested and incarcerated and 
but but then but really no one saw it coming uh, very slowly of course the uh, the borders were being opened hungary opened its its borders um uh, east germans went to into the the uh, the um, the Br British Embassy, was it the British Embassy in Prague? Um, Hungary opened its borders and East Germans started just flowing across. They would, breaking the laws, uh, their passports stamped do not readmit as they walked over. Um, but that was in the summer of 1989. And when you say Gorbachev made the decision, I mean, how important was Moscow and that, and that decision that came down to that super, the supreme command, if you like, Gorbachev sitting in Moscow? Oh, it was absolutely central because up until that point, as we know with the Prague Spring, if we know, as we know with the Hungarian uprising, those uprisings, those, those moves towards liberalism failed because the Red Army, because Moscow ordered the, uh, the Red Army and the Warsaw Pact to go in. And Gorbachev distinctly said, I am not sending in the troops. He told that to Honecker, who was the... Uh, who was the, the chairman of the Communist Party, the leader of East Germany. And so without, <laughs> without, um, without the, uh, the Red Army there to impose uh, the uh, dictatorship on the, uh, the East Germans, the wall just crumbled. And then there was this ridiculous misunderstanding on the evening of 9th of November when there was a press conference about the future easing of travel um, travel, uh, travel allowances that, that East Germans and East Berliners would be allowed to travel. And, and one of the uh, members of the East German Politburo was asked, well, when will this happen? And he said, oh, I, well, I think immediately, isn't it immediately? And so people heard this on the radio and they went, right. And they went to the border posts and they said, let us through. We've been told we can go through. And their passports initially were stamped, do not readmit. But then a call was made. There was no backup from Moscow. So they opened the gates and people just flowed into, into West Berlin. And, and I think one of the most moving th moments for me was the people, the, the East Berliners, c coming across and, yes, sparklers and sound of car horns and cheering and clapping and flowers. But the East Germans, the East Berliners especially, turning and looking back at the wall, at the gate, a bit like my friend Thomas Brucey closing the door behind him, thinking, maybe I'll never see my apartment again. Because it could have, maybe there would have been a change in Moscow. Uh, maybe they would have decide to, decided to slam down the, uh, the crossing points the, in, in, uh, in Berlin, and they couldn't have gone back. And that, I just found that so moving that there they, yes, we're, doing, we're free, we're part of it. Oh boy, are we going to be able to go back? <laughs> ah, and thank goodness, they, <laughs> they, they, uh, the walls were opened, and within days, parts of the wall were taken down, and you could walk in no man's land. They had to dig up the mines first and take away the guard dogs, but then you could walk. Yeah, I remember <laughs> walking through this sand, which was always carefully raked so they could see if anybody had walked across it. Because um, the wall was actually two walls. There were two walls with this no man's land in between. And <laughs> I and, and thousands, tens of thousands of others could walk on this, this, this sand, this no man's land, where just a few days before there had been mines, where you would have been shot for wanting 
to cross over it, for wanting to live in a different system. My dad said it was one heck of a party. <laughs> it, it was, it was a, a good party, yes. It was, it was, it was this time, it was the, the spark for this remarkable time for such changes between, between then November 9th, 1989 and Ceausescu, the, the, the change in Romania, and then one, two years later, the changes in Russia. It was just this, such a time of optimism, of hope, of, <laughs> of belief in a better world, I suppose. Well, this new book that you've written is uh, revisiting that part of the world. Did, does your hope, did your hope at the time uh, bear fruit? Well, if that's what hope does, I don't know if that's what, <laughs> did, did, your, did your optimism at the time result in, in the, the kind of change you thought you, you, you hoped and dreamed they might, you might see? No, I would suppose, to be honest, I was naive. We thought, I thought, we thought this is the new way it is. This is how Europe will be. So 30 years on um, for my new book, Pravda Haha, I retraced my journey backwards from Moscow to Berlin, and to Brexit Britain, asking what became of the optimism of those days. Why have the, uh, why have the Russians, having seized freedom in 92, 93, 94, why have they surrendered it for dictatorship 2.0? Um, and, and how has it come about that, uh, that we now, we in the West, not just in the West and the East, so easily fall for the spin, the, the false narratives, the lies of, um, of, of people who want power. Well, let's start in Russia. So what is your, what's your hot take on that? what's gone wrong there? <laughs> you haven't gone what, <laughs> days, I, sadly. Uh, I, I think what, what, what we don't appreciate in uh, about Russia in the early 1990s and 92, 93 is how traumatic the change was. In those years, the GDP of Russia fell by 50%. That's more than, higher than America during the Great Depression. Um, the age, the, the mean, the, the age uh, of males dropped to 57 years, the highest in the, um, the lowest <laughs> in the civilized world. Um, Bank savings, people who'd saved all their lives, bank savings wiped out by inflation. And so, and I think most importantly is the, or most profoundly, is the narrative that Russians had been fed for three generations, that this was the, the perfect, this, this was the, um, the new ideology, the, the vision of the future. That was gone. They had no vision of the future. And so, in their disappointment, in, in the lack of a vision for the future, they, they started to look back to the Soviet days with a, a sentimental air. Um, they started getting nostalgic. And individuals who were after power, who wanted power, manipulated that and took advantage of that. And so the gulags, uh, what, uh, what is the quote? The, the gulags, for example, became, were actually the unavoidable cost of modernization. Stalin, who killed God knows how many, um, came to be deified. The, the Red Army was glorified. And, and so Russians fell for leaders who told an emotive story um, because it, 
gave them something to believe in. And what about for, what about the old Russian Empire in Eastern Europe, where we see in Hungary and Poland uh, anti-democratic changes going on at the moment? Yes. What 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 happened in in those countries? Because they surely can't look back on Soviet mastery with great affection. No, they have handled it in their individual ways, especially Poland and Hungary. Hungary has equated Nazism, uh, Soviet communism, and Brussels, and to to say that it's really us Hungarians who are the only or the only um. um honest people in our history. We must rely on ourselves. We can't rely on Brussels. We have to. We're surrounded by enemies, which is the same as the, the new Russian narrative, because you will remember in the early mid-90s, 93, 4, 5, 6, Russia and the West were moving very close together. But that was not a empowering narrative for the Russian leadership. So certainly by 2000, the West was created as an enemy again. We're surrounded by enemies. And so we, Russians in this case, must band together against the enemies. Every time I go to Russia, everybody tells me that unlike everywhere else in the world, in Russia, security trumps prosperity. That's what they all say. <laughs> um, and is that something you found when you're traveling around? I mean, is, is sort of na national greatness almost more important than in sort of... Yes, I, I think if I can, if I can um, uh, rewind to uh, 1973, if you can imagine a, an arrow straight Leningrad street, and in number 12, there's a young man watching television. Actually, the whole of the country is watching television. It was a television series, a 12-part television series called 17 Moments of Spring. And it tells the story of a KGB officer during the Second World War, who infiltrates Nazi high command and changes the course of history. And it totally captivated the, the Russian public. No, no, with no concern for the fact that it's a fictional story mixed with actual footage from the Second World War. Everyone came to believe that it was true. And that young man at number 12, the next day, and, or oh, sorry, most importantly, that the film, 17 Moments of Spring, the TV series, was financed and written by the KGB. That young man in number 12, the next day, he uh, goes around the corner to uh, KGB headquarters in Leningrad and uh, offers his services for the country. And that young man was, um, was Vladimir Putin. Amazing. His backstory. His backstory. It springs from a, a good narrative <laughs> from a TV program. There's a bit more than that. <laughs> and Putin has, Putin is everywhere at the moment. Do you, do you credit, as someone who's traveled widely in, in the area and talked to lots of people and written lots of books, uh, does, does Putin feel like he's in a position of strength at the moment or is his, is his troublemaking from a, a profound place of weakness? He was in a profound place of weakness, as was Russia. Um, if you can imagine, he returned. <laughs> his, his father had fought during the Second World War. His mother had almost died in the siege of Leningrad. He, like his parents, had his life was the old Soviet system. Suddenly, in the 1990s, it falls apart. At the time, he was a KGB officer in Dresden. 
imagine him driving back to the collapsed empire, embittered and, if you like, filled with redemptive purpose. And I think that's what's fired him through the years, that he wanted. And that's why he calls the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union and the fall of the, great, of, the, of the Berlin Wall the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. <laughs> for, for us, that's inexplicable. But if we look at it from his point of view, everything that he and his parents believed in was lost um, in 89 and, and 90. So you begin to understand. And I think he has played his, a very weak hand remarkably well. Um, do you think he is, uh, given that we're talking about the mysterious and unexpected collapse of so the Soviet Empire in Eastern Europe, do you think we might be looking back at our, our failure also to predict that Putin was shakier, that the Putin regime was shakier than we give it credit for now? <laughs> when you've been in Russia, what do you, what do you, what do you, what's your sense of how rooted it is there? It, it is, it is, on the ground it seems very, it's very rooted. He certainly has the majority of support. Because he has restored pride for most Russians, he's restored their pride. And that what was, is what was lost with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Most, uh, we treat Mikhail Gorbachev as a hero. In Russia, he's seen as the worst, le by, uh, by most Russians, the majority of Russians, seen as, a, as the worst leader ever because he destroyed the Soviet Union and gave away East Germany to the West. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah, but <laughs> this is, you know, I, I think it's, I think <laughs> if you like, there's a wonderful quote which I have, because when, when Vladimir Putin came to power in Russia, Russia had no status, it had no money. And one of his uh, advisors said, what we need is a weapon that is very cheap, almost free of charge, but can affect a huge number of people as can nuclear weapons. And he and his colleagues then came up with or saw the power of the Internet. And they have used, they created an organization called the Internet Research Agency, which, um, as we know, in the 2016 U.S. elections, U.S. presidential elections, posted 80,000 Facebook posts, which were seen by 126 million Americans. And in the, the, the statistics are there now for the Brexit referendum, 3,800 fake accounts, hashtag reasons to leave the EU, all posted from St. Petersburg. And we know they're posted from St. Petersburg because of something in the digital sig sig uh, signature. And also because they were all posted between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. St. Petersburg time with a break for lunch. So that's where they came from. And, and the, um, the purpose of them was to sow distrust, to uh, exacerbate dis division and to discredit truth. So the, uh, the, 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 the technology that um, President Putin and his um, colleagues used was, not, was new, but the techniques were those which had been used by Lenin and Stalin. So you've made this big trip around Eastern Europe and, and Soviet Union in the, in the late 80s, 90s. You've just made the big trip now. Have you come away feeling optimistic <laughs> like you did those 30 years ago? What was your, what's your takeout? I, I, I think, the, yes, there is now that beginning of optimism because, 
because of young people. It's, it's something that there are young people, people I met who had protested against the Soviets are now protesting against the present Russian regime. Um, so yes, yes, I am beginning <laughs> to be optimistic. I, I, think, I think my takeaway to answer your question is we all, we all want, we all desire clarity. Um, but clarity does not equal oversimplification. And sound bites, political spin, uh, pretty posts on Facebook, they're simplification. And of course, they're very appealing and they're nice and we forward them or we tell them our friends. But that's not what we need now. We, we need to look at, at realize that the world is complex. We shouldn't go looking for simple solutions. So if you like, that's my, that's my takeaway. We need to understand something, understand the political situation um, from different points of view. If someone tells you the solutions are simple, they might well be lying to you. <laughs> very true. They are. It's not simple. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Rory. That was an amazing, uh, amazing book, Pravda Haha, and good luck with it. Thank you, Dan. Thank you.